Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. Make sure you subscribe to get every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we look at factor funds. These products give investors the ability to tilt their portfolio towards certain types of stocks based on their characteristics, such as value, momentum, or quality. And I want to find out whether factor funds can outperform the broad market and what risks they involve. And then later in the show, we try to answer the dumb question of the week. Why are CEOs paid so much? And does higher pay lead to better performance? All right, let's get into it. There are many funds which claim to be able to outperform the market through one smart strategy or another. One such group of funds that has proven increasingly popular in recent years is factor funds. So Roman, maybe let's start by explaining what exactly are factor funds? Well, this is something that was identified quite a long time ago. The famous paper is by Farmer and French. Farmer and French. Sounds like a kind of (laughs) comedy duo from the 90s. (laughs) Anyway, Eugene Farmer and Kenneth French came up with this idea of factors where they looked at particular types of stock to see whether they outperformed relative to the broad market. Right. So these funds, which are based on the Farmer and French factors, which we'll come on to in a minute, are they passive or active? I think this really blurs the line. However, with these factor funds, you can actually write a computer program to find the companies which satisfy the criteria. So, for example, if you're looking for value, you look for companies which have low valuations based on some defined measure, like price to earnings ratio or price to book value. And then you can automate the process of stock selection. So you simply buy the stocks which have a lot of that factor. They're very cheap. Or you can even short the companies which have a lack of that factor. So it would be expensive companies in this case. So it's passive in the sense that there's not a manager there going like, oh, which companies do I like today? But it's kind of active in the sense that the criteria are written by a human based on these principles. It's kind of one level indirect active because a human wrote the program to actually select the stocks. But then once it's working, then humans don't step into the machine. And that makes it a lot cheaper because, of course, active fund management, what you're paying a lot for is the very well-paid active stock pickers. So maybe let's just go through what the different factors are. So you mentioned value. That's probably the easiest one to understand. Yeah, so value is one that, for example, Warren Buffett uses, or at least he claims that's what he uses. I'm sure there are other factors he uses as well. But another one, for example, which I like is called quality. Now, the idea there is you choose companies which have a balance sheet which looks very good. So, for example, you wouldn't take companies which have too much debt or companies which don't have steadily growing earnings or which have a low return on equity. So the amount of net profit that they generate is actually small relative to the amount of equity in the company. So that's called return on equity. So by filtering on those criteria, you kind of weed out the bad companies and then look to see historically, has that factor outperformed? I mean, it sounds like it should. I mean, why would I want the companies which don't meet that factor? Well, the the funny thing is that sometimes during a very strong rally, people call it a flight to (laughs) shy. Or more politely, a junk rally, because when there's euphoria in the market, people go for precisely that kind of junk company. So I guess you're saying if we're going for quality, we're investing kind of based on fundamentals and which companies deserve our capital. But the market doesn't always reward those companies, so it's not guaranteed to outperform. 
That's right. That's right. So I think people just assume that quality is going to outperform because people stroke their beards and consider which company to put their money into. And it's a very elaborate decision process. But of course, most of the time, markets are driven by bouts of incredible euphoria where people just buy anything. And something which is disruptive, exciting, has a good narrative will always trump a company which has good fundamentals because essentially it's about marketing and human behavior. So I guess with quality, the kind of companies we're missing out on might be those ones that aren't going to generate a profit for a long time and they've got a lot of debt, you know, these really early stage growth companies. You know, the lottery tickets which can sometimes pay off hugely. Yeah, as long as the CEO talks a good game, you know, I think that's going to be the kind of company that will do well in a euphoric market. Theranos is one example of a company where the CEO just had an incredible ability to sell the company. But if you actually looked at the fundamentals, nobody would have invested, I don't think. So let's quickly revisit value. What exactly is the idea behind that factor? So the idea with value is that if things are cheap, those are the companies where you're buying at a discount and eventually the company will recover. Now, of course, companies can be cheap for a very good reason, which is that it's a rubbish company. You know, uh, if, if, if the valuation's low, it's usually for a reason. Or it could be because of some other factor which makes one sector look unattractive. Yeah, so energy, I think, that had that problem, hasn't it, for a while where, you know, we're going to move away from fossil fuels, so people don't want to put as much money there. That's right. There's a kind of unspoken consensus among investors which makes one sector look unattractive. But if you actually look at the fundamentals of some of these companies, they still look quite sound. So I think that value factor is one which is interesting because it does identify those companies But sometimes you might want to combine factors in order to weed out the ones which are likely to stay cheap for a long time because they're just not very good companies. So value is looking for cheap companies. Quality is looking for good companies. What about momentum then? What's that looking for? Well, momentum is an interesting one because all it looks for is companies where the price is rising and it shuns companies where the price is falling. So it doesn't care about what the company is. It just is the stock price going up or down. Yeah. Usually it takes some parent index like MSCI, All Country World Index, which is just a global equity index, and it simply filters based on price momentum, usually over a couple of periods, usually over, say, six months and maybe 12 months. And if the momentum's good on both those, then it tilts towards that company. So it's kind of leaning into the euphoria, which you talked about earlier. Yes. But of course, what goes wrong with momentum is that there are periods of time when equity markets simply whipsaw up and down. For example, if you look at the markets over the last three months, that's been a period when the momentum's kind of come out of global markets. So momentum does really badly when markets whipsaw, when they don't have a direction, but also when there's a reversal. So themes which change then lead momentum to be in the wrong stocks at the wrong time. Because it can't change quickly enough. Exactly. They have to have some rebalancing period. And I think, for example, for MSCI momentum, their indices rebalance every six months. So if you're unlucky, then it piles into the recent trend and then that reverses and then you get completely hammered. And in terms of other factors, you mentioned size where, you know, small companies have, I think, been shown to outperform somewhat over the long term. That's a bit of more of a basic factor, right? Yes, size and something else called liquidity are kind of related to each other. The idea is with liquidity is that you go for companies which have very little, say, daily trading. They might be smaller companies, usually companies which are smaller have smaller liquidity. And there's usually a premium if you buy those companies. So liquidity and small 
cap are two related factors. So size, liquidity, same thing, kind of. But there are some people who say that that liquidity premium or small cap premium has gone away. So these factors certainly come in and out of popularity. And sometimes they underperform for a very long period of time. Yeah, I mean, when we say small caps have underperformed, I mean, that's clearly the case recently, right, where the market's just been driven by those mega caps, the Apples, the Googles, which have pushed up values. So many of the trends which lasted for a very long time have simply gone away. So, for example, if you look at the outperformance of value, it actually outperformed growth which is the kind of opposite of value, between 1926 and 2006. Farmer and French publishes data, you can check this out for yourself. And then since 2006, it's been underperforming. So it outperforms for more than a human lifetime, and then suddenly things reverse. And I guess the question is, is the factor dead or is it just sleeping? <laughs> yes. So there are some very famous factor investors like Clifford Asnes, who's written some amazing papers about this, who said this value factor is not dead and rumours of its death have been greatly exaggerated. I think that was the title of his paper. That's about as funny as it gets in economics, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, financial papers are quite dry, so you have to rely on a bit of humour. But he's, he, he still thinks that it's going to revive. Of course he does, because that's his career. But personally, I think uh, the choice of factors is much more driven by how long do they stay underperforming. And there's one final factor I've seen listed on brokerages, which is minimum volatility or minvol. What's that? So for these funds, you go for a combination of stocks. And the combination is important here, where the volatility, that's a typical annual percentage price move, is very small. So think about boring stocks, which really don't move much. So you'd be buying things like utilities, maybe drug companies, things which aren't exciting. So the idea here is that you buy the tortoises rather than the hares the boring utility companies, which are just plodders. Also, you combine stocks in such a way as to cancel out each other's price movements. So by combining uncorrelated stocks, your overall fund volatility is quite low. So I kind of like that factor because it's about being boring, which of course is my USP. <laughs> Have you bought it before? I have actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wrong, man. it's the most scaredy cat of all the factors. <laughs> ah, but boredom, it pays. And so when I think about these different factors we have, we've got value, momentum, liquidity, quality, minimum volatility, you know, they all sound like they should work, right? Instinctively, like good companies should outperform, cheap companies should outperform. So it's for me, it's like looking at a menu and not knowing what to order. They all look tasty. And that's the problem, I think, with factors, which is each one of them has a very compelling narrative behind it. So people go into a factor, usually it's after a period of outperformance for that factor, and then suddenly things turn around, they sell it, and they start to underperform their own index. So I think you really need to find a factor that you believe in and stick with it for a long period of time. Because the academic research shows that's the way in which you can monetize these factors. And when we say a long period of time, are we talking decades? We are talking decades, which is very difficult. Yeah, imagine if you're if you're a value investor and you've been underperforming since 2006, how would you feel? Would you stick with it? I mean, I'm sure I'd change just knowing it's the wrong thing to do, but it's like being in traffic, isn't it? You're stuck in the lane, you see everyone going fast in the lane next to you and you go in and then that stops. <laughs> That's right. So I think I think that's why it's difficult for people to buy these and make use of the factor out performance because of cognitive reasons where we have cognitive problems about staying invested in a particular thing when it's underperforming, even though that's probably the best thing to do. So for example, 
I think it's best to choose your factor based on the ones which don't underperform for long periods of time. So when I did a video about this, I showed that the ulcer index, which shows how long and how deep these drawdown periods are for a particular factor, if you use that as a kind of scoring metric, factors like momentum look awful because you do get these very sharp reversals. They exaggerate the trends of the market. Exactly. They, they kind of get on the latest trend and then when it reverses, they get completely hammered. Whereas if you go for something like quality, that does tend to have fairly short periods of underperformance during these euphoric periods. So that's one of the big risks then is, you know, you panic in, in the drawdown, which is bigger than the market. What are some of the other risks with factor funds? You've talked a bit about there's research behind it, which I like to hear because so much of these kind of funds as an amateur, you're not sure, is this just Wall Street trying to make me pay higher fees for something that isn't going to outperform? Yeah, this is why I like them, because it's based on peer-reviewed research. So for example, if you publish a paper about a factor outperforming, it will be checked by your peers, no question. So that's a very good indicator of something which is true or false. Peer review is a good process for weeding out falsehoods. Because the fees are slightly higher, right? They're about 0.3% per year, I think, for factor funds typically, whereas you could buy the broad world market for about 0.2%. So you've got 50% higher fees. Yeah, and I think a cynical person would say this is just a way for fund managers who've realised that passive funds no longer pay much to think of things which they can charge more for, with a narrative behind it which makes the marketing much easier. And I'm a bit cynical, so I kind of agree with that. And I suppose my other question is, do these factors actually outperform on a risk-adjusted basis? So are you basically taking more risk to get that more reward? Well, in the case of something like minimum vol, it kind of goes for something which is, by definition, low risk. So it really depends on the factor. And there's no reason why someone couldn't create a factor which is based on risk-adjusted returns. So sharp ratio might perform quite well. I'm surprised there isn't a sharp ratio factor fund, actually. Maybe that's our opportunity gap in the market the Romin fund that's right many happy returns capital inc etf 0.8 percent <laughs> fee i suppose my other question is this research is all publicly available if everyone knows about these factors why would they continue to outperform yes this is another point which people make which is why things might disappear you know, you do have these trends in markets, and if many people pile into it, the risk premium goes away. So for example, if value becomes very popular, everybody buys into it. So very quickly, this value premium disappears. So I think if there were too many factor funds and a lot of money chasing those premia, you're absolutely right. I think the, the trend would actually go away. There is an exception, which is momentum, because if you imagine there are huge numbers of momentum funds, then people pile into momentum when it does well would actually amplify the trend. It's like a feedback loop of momentum. Yeah, it's a positive feedback loop. So that would be potentially a, a problem for markets because it would amplify the gains and it would amplify the falls. And if we look at which factors have done well over, say, the past decade, I guess the big trend has been away from value, like you say, um, and towards growth. Are we starting to see that reverse now a little bit? Certainly, that's what's characterised the beginning of 2022, which is that values actually outperformed, which everyone's been cheering, and growth has done particularly badly. We say everyone, not the people who are in growth, all the youngsters. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> 
But look, for a decade, mega cap growth has just done incredibly well. But of course, for much of that decade, interest rates were almost at zero. And these companies which dominated Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, these are all companies which have been very profitable. So you could say this is more to do with tech trends rather than just growth per se. But yeah, this does look a little bit like a reversal. I mean, I don't make predictions, but I certainly think that certain things like small cap growth have been so beaten up that it's probably time for a bit of a reversal. So you mentioned small cap growth, but the combination of factors I hear everyone talking about is small cap value. Interesting, because small cap value outperformed for absolutely ages. If you have back tests that go back to 1960, it's been a huge winner. So lots of people who talk about factors say small cap value is the thing to go for. But again, it hasn't done well for a very long time. And we can't even buy it in the UK, I think. I couldn't find a small cap value fund. There is one. Oh, there is one. Yeah, but it's based on US small cap value, of course. But there is one. Because that's the one where you sort of dig into the forums online, like Boggleheads or whatever, or Bogleheads. They all talk about small cap value as a kind of core holding. Yeah, because they have a spreadsheet called the Simba spreadsheet, which is great. It has annual returns going back for a very long time. And it has a small cap value fund in that. It's one produced by Vanguard. And that one does show out performance for a very long period of time, but not recently. And I suppose the final point is, if we're talking about our portfolios, how might we incorporate a factor fund? So personally, you know, the core holding I have, as I suppose a lot of people do, is global equity, just, you know, market cap weighted, the neutral fund. Would you say, you know, you could combine your favourite factor with that? Or would you just replace the whole thing with a quality fund or a value fund? I think it depends on your belief, but also you have to consider your own psychology. You have to have that kind of self-knowledge. If you're the kind of person that would step back from the factor if it starts underperforming, then really that factor fund is not for you. But if you don't have much conviction... You could... <laughs> I don't. Okay. <laughs> well, in that case, you know, you just have, say, 10% of your global equity in, I don't know, quality, and the remaining 90% would be a global fund. So it would just be a slight tilt. And I suppose the question is, do we really need to try and beat the broad index? Won't it do well enough? Why are we always chasing slightly better returns? Well, if you have that hankering for beating the market, then I think factors are probably the best way to do it. Because if there is alpha from active managers, it's usually gobbled up by their high fees. So at least with factors, they, they're relatively cheap for an active strategy, semi-active strategy. Smart beta. Well, smart beta is the other way they've rebranded it. That's right. Because, <laughs> because beta is simply market tracking, but you're tracking an index based on some quant's dream of a particular factor. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Like active funds have kind of become a dirty word, at least amongst a lot of retail investors. So no one wants to use the word active if they can help it. Well, sure. If you're selling snake oil, if you're telling people something works when 85% of the time it doesn't, at some point people are going to cotton on to that fact. So, <laughs> I mean, you can kind of see why it's a dirty word, but it is a kind of active strategy in the sense that it's based on historic research, but not on human judgment. That's the key thing. Factor funds are something we discuss a lot in the Patreon community. We have lots of members-only content, a growing library of members-only videos, and regular calls for the community where you can ask questions live. If you want to learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. And each week I ask a dumb question. Well, I ask many, but we have one section which is specifically for a dumb question. Um, and this week we're looking at why are CEOs paid so much? And does higher CEO pay lead to better performance? 
What do you think, Roman? Well, the evidence is that it doesn't. And intuitively, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. What does a CEO actually do? We always used to joke when I was working. Oh, I mustn't say that. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've all got anecdotes where we can slag off CEOs. (laughs) Be careful what I say. People used to joke that basically a squirrel in charge could have made money for certain types of company because they do set strategic direction. You know, they are useful for that. But the question is, how much compensation should they receive relative to the people who are actually doing the work in the company? And I think the evidence is very clear. You actually found a really good paper about that, didn't you, Michael? Yeah. So MSCI did some research in 2016, which showed that CEOs pay had no correlation with long-term stock performance. If anything, it was detrimental. So it was misaligned in more than three-fifths of companies. So I think the evidence is pretty clear. If you do pay the CEO too much, that's money that could have been paid to the people on the front lines to incentivize them. So I think paying the staff better, I think that would actually be probably... Yeah, so it's interesting if you look at the stats. So in 2020, a CEO at one of the top 350 firms in the US was paid an average of $24.2 million. And the ratio of that CEO pay to a typical worker was 350 to 1. Now that... That can't be healthy for a company, surely. And the other thing I think is who gets the money? Who gets the profit? Should it be the CEO? Should it be the senior managers? Or should it be the shareholders as well? So the three groups of people, of course, CEO, senior management, shareholders and staff, the pendulum has swung very clearly, certainly in the United States, to the senior management and the CEO and the shareholders and away from the staff. And I think what illustrates that is that the research shows from 1978 to 2020, CEO pay grew by, let me try to read this number, (laughs) (laughs) 1,322%. I don't know what that means, but you know, that outstripped the stock market, which was 817%. And let me start this whole thing again. Okay, I'll keep powering on. The basic point is the CEO pay grew much faster than the stock market and the top 0.1% of earners, which grew 341%. And the typical worker over that period grew just 18%. So, you know, the CEO pay has massively outstripped every other component, like you were saying, about where the rewards go. And I think there'll be a backlash. It's inevitable that there will be. And it's justifiable. Personally, as an investor in a company, I'd rather see a company compensating its workers reasonably well. And whether the CEO gets lots of pay or or not, I think is not so helpful. I mean, the other thing we saw is in the pandemic where we had that downturn, a lot of boards adjusted the compensation structure for the CEO. So they still hit their bonus targets despite, you know, missing profit forecasts where they wouldn't do that on the upside, right? They wouldn't say, oh, the market's just unreasonably strong. So we're going to make it even harder to reach your targets. So it kind of seems like everything's in their favor. Also, unionization, that's been the big driver of fair compensation for workers. And that's actually been hugely weakened, certainly in the United States, since roughly the early 80s. In fact, if you look at the productivity of US companies, and there's a beautiful paper by the Economic Policy Institute in the United States, where they have this beautiful graph, which shows that the break actually happened in the early 80s, where productivity has grown hugely at US companies, but compensation simply hasn't. And that's largely due to this unionization ending in the United States. In fact, I had a comment on YouTube from 
someone called Apache Attack Helicopter, which kind of tells you all you need to know, <laughs> saying that I was Marxist for referencing that paper. <laughs> right. I mean, we're just in favour of shareholder returns, right? We are also left-wing. Don't say that, my God. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, but I believe in capitalism, certainly, I think, as a system. You know, you take capital from people who have it and you give it to companies that need it. And I think that's actually not inconsistent. I mean, I think if you look at the data, it's clear that paying the CEO way more than he or she deserves does not lead to better performance. So just as a rational shareholder, you don't want CEO pay, you know, gaining many multiples each year. And if we think about how can we fix it, there was some suggestions on Morningstar, which I quite liked. One was to make the CEOs suffer when shareholders suffer, because, you know, performance-based pay, you need that. Focus more on the long-term value creation of a company. So, so much CEO pay is tied to a sort of three-year window, which isn't often long enough to evaluate whether they've done a good job. The third point was to reduce the sort of cosy relationship between the executives and the board of directors where, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Pay goes up, everyone's happy. (laughs) And the last one, which is I think the most important point, was there is a legal obligation to have say on pay votes, at least in the US, where shareholders can vote down executive pay awards, but they're not legally binding. So I think there needs to be more of a a formal process where, you know, the board can be told, go and think again. And if you look at companies like BlackRock, who actually own a lot of the stocks in the companies across the world, and that's because they have passively managed ETFs, which actually have a lot of the votes, they've actually been using that vote in many cases to reduce CEO pay. Yeah. So I think activism amongst these big passive fund managers is really important here. And that could actually change the trend that we've been seeing. But it's odd that, you know, we like living in a democracy, but the minute we step into work, we're in this kind of feudal system where you've got huge wealth inequality and you've got huge income inequality. And yet people are fine with that. You know, who wants to live in a feudal system? The people at the top. (laughs) (laughs) It's the answer. (laughs) Not the serfs, that's for sure. I mean, do you think we could, you know, me and you, could we run a big company, joint CEO? Yeah, why not? I don't know what we'd run. Uh, we'd be many happy, many happy sprockets, I think, yeah. We'd sell sprockets. Sprocket capital, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're going to sell fewer sprockets than some sort of $25 million CEO. But the sprocket manufacturers would be paid well. <laughs> One of my mates messaged me yesterday, said, can you please get through a whole episode without mentioning sprockets? Thanks so much for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Please do leave us a quick rating or review if you've enjoyed the show. It certainly has been great seeing so many of you leaving positive comments. Thank you for that. We'll see you again next week. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.